You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning. How's it going? This isn't bad for a Labor Day weekend, right, when campus kind of clears out. If I don't know you, I'm Fred. I'm one of the pastors here in Illini Life. Last week was kind of a big week for us. We kicked off a, a teaching series that we're going to be in and out of for almost the entire school year. It's about the Sermon on the Mount, and we're calling it Your Guide to Exile. And if you missed it, it's no, no big deal. Everything we do here on Sunday mornings gets recorded. Uh, we put it up on our website. You can get it there, or you know, we have a podcast you can subscribe to. It's all there for you. And uh, I hope you guys will check it out, right, because there's, there's all kinds of stuff on there. It goes way back. You can find out all kinds of topics that maybe you're interested in. It's a great resource for you guys to have, but I thought I'd better start out by kind of getting everyone up to speed, at least kind of the, the 32nd version of last week, because it was about this, this concept of exile. And it's a big, huge kind of theme in the Bible, but it's not always that accessible to us. We kind of got to get our head around it. And where we kind of landed was that exile is this, is this reality that we, we long for the world to be a little bit better, right? As people, we want that. Uh, we, we desire that somewhere deep in our in like our gut. But then we have this experience of life that's like, okay, if it, the world doesn't just get better on its own. In fact, it can be pretty discouraging, right? And so we, we look out and we experience like, okay, there's, there's poverty in the world. There's racism. There's millions and millions of people displaced. And what we're really seeing are our political realities and social realities, but also a very real spiritual reality. And it's this idea of exile. Right, that we are estranged from the world as God made it to be. And, and, the, Bible, and the Bible lays that out for, for a long time. But it's not all gloom and doom, right? There's, there's really good news in the Bible, and namely it's when Jesus steps on the scene, right? It's, it's, this is why we're Christians, because Jesus comes along and he announces essentially that he plays by very different rules. Right? He announces kind of his main thing that he teaches us in the kingdom of God. He's saying that the power of God is, is breaking through into kind of our day-to-day reality, and that that is very good news for us, right? And so last week we talked about the Beatitudes, kind of the start. It's like a preamble to his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's amazing stuff. And, and this week we're just going to pick off, nothing, pick, pick up where we left off, right? Nothing fancy. The next seven Verses and, and the Beatitudes, they're really kind of broad, sweeping statements. And this week is going to be a lot of that as well. They're kind of these, these really grand uh, kind of ideas that Jesus is taking up. And then, and then in further, you know, in the Sermon on Mount, as we get into it, he's going to do the, like, anger. We're going to talk about lust. We're going to talk about integrity. We're going to talk about money. Like, he's going to get into practical, real-life stuff. But, but for now, he's just kind of setting the table for everything that he's doing. And so that's where we're at. These are kind of like two introductory weeks that we're in. And so we're going to be in Matthew 5 this morning, right where we left off. If you want to open up to your, your Bible, great. Uh, we're going to have the words for you on the screen like we always do. And uh, you know, I was thinking of where to start this morning. And as I really looked at these passages, I thought, you know, this is, I don't need some kind of clever introduction, right? We don't really need any kind of word pictures to get our head around the questions that this is going to make us ask. Because the, the tension that's here when we read it, I think it's going to speak for itself. Because Jesus says some things that are pretty, um, a little bit hard to kind of grasp and, and hold on to, right? He says that all of this back here, the, what he calls the law and the prophets, 
right? We call it the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't, wasn't written yet when Jesus is saying these words. And so the, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, everything there, right, isn't going away. He's going he's to say he's going to be fulfilling those things. So listen for that because we're going to struggle with that, I think. I think you'll see that, right? Not everything here is really accessible to us. So here we go. Picking up in verse 13, he's speaking to a bunch of his followers from a hillside. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Then there's this next section. So two word pictures and then this next long section. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. And not everything Jesus says is, is easy to appreciate, I think. And there's these two word pictures, right? Salt and light, and that's where he starts. And, and we'll get into those along the way, and we'll kind of explore what those are about. But this, that, that, that second section, I've come to fulfill the law, and none of it's going away, that's... That's a little bit more loaded for us, right? And, and I think that really gets at the heart of, of what we're going to struggle with this morning. And so I, I thought a few examples would be helpful of what we mean when we say the law and the prophets. I think there's a lot of it that we're fine with. It makes a lot of sense to us. Like We're glad it's in the Bible, right? Ten Commandments. There's, there's, it's not too bad, right? You shall not murder. Worked back then. It works now. We're, we're on board with that. Uh, you should not commit adultery. We, we understand why it's in there. That's a tough one, right? Sometimes you're like, what exactly did you mean by... You shall not steal. Again, makes a lot of sense for, for people, right? I wasn't going to rob a bank. I'm, I'm good. I, I don't really take offense to you won't steal. You shouldn't steal. But then there is stuff, right, that, that we've all read in the comments of the Internet that's much more loaded, much more hard to appreciate. So let's look at Leviticus here. Here's just an example, right? If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. It's like, good morning. Where did that come from? That seems really harsh. I think we're glad uh, that's, not, that's not how we do it in this day and age, right? But, but, but people see that. They read that and they say, well, that's in your Bible, right? That's crazy. And it goes further than that, right? I brought a couple of examples. I want to downplay this tension. I don't want to downplay how hard this is. Like, there's, there's also this, this sense that the Bible is just not relevant anymore, right? It's not a book for our day and age. What do you do with this if you're not a farmer, okay? This is from Exodus. If a man grazes his livestock in the field or the vineyard or, or a, in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they go and graze in another man's field, he must make restitution from the best of his own field or vineyard. 
I don't, I don't own a cow. Right? What, what do I do with that? And then this one. This shows up three times in the law. It's the only, it's the only command, the only law that, that's repeated three times. Don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. All right. <laughs> what do you, why is that there? <laughs> what, what is our connection to that? Okay, one more, all right? This is a big section of law. There's a lot of stuff about the sacrificial system, the temple, right? And it's just plain foreign to us. It's just plain weird. Okay, so I'm just going to blast through this. If a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. He's to bring to the priest a guilt offering, a ram from the flock one without defect and of proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him for the wrong he has committed unintentionally, and he will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. It's describing exactly what it sounds like. It's talking about animal sacrifice. And no, no, we do not practice that here in a line of life, right, in case that's unclear to you, right? That's exactly the tension, isn't it? Right? Like it's there, or it was there. Jesus says it's not going anywhere. Right? The, the law and the prophets, that's not going anywhere. That's not going away. And yet, as Christians, as people who believe the Bible, we, we, don't, we don't do it. We don't practice it. Right? And, that, and that is really the kind of the meat of the question that I want to ask this morning. That's where I want us to dig in. Right? What is our relationship to the Old Testament. Christians, it's a more important question than we think because it leads us down roads of like, okay, not only does it still matter, but is it good, right? How can something so harsh, so kind of foreign, you could say archaic, possibly relate to my life in this day and age, right, as, as a Christian? Is it something that we want to avoid, that we want to kind of sweep under the carpet and hope no one sees and even importantly, are we, are we obeying God? Are we disobeying God by not doing those things and, and, and more, right? There's, there's more in there. Right? Those are all kind of the roads that this leads us down. And so I got to ask you guys, like, you got to stretch yourself this morning, okay? I'm going to ask you to track with me because these aren't, it's not a simple question for one. And so it's not really going to be a simple answer. But my hope and my prayers I've been thinking about this is that you guys are going to have some tools, right? You're going to learn this book in new ways, and, and, and that's going to bless your life. We're going to have some tools for actually understanding what we have here. Okay, and a quick note about sources, and this is kind of sources for our, our whole series here, your guide to exile. We've got to give credit where credit's due. This is really important. There are scholars that have given their entire life to understanding God's Word and the history and the genre so that the church can faithfully live it out. And so it, this may or may not be obvious to you, but anytime someone gets up here to speak on a Sunday morning, like we, we insist that they've studied, right? That they've looked and dove deep into these passages because right? we want to have integrity in what we're teaching. But if you ever, I mean, if you want more on the sources, just email me anytime. Right? We could talk about it, okay? The big question, what is our relationship to the Old Testament? It is a really important question. And I want to start in a place that's not, uh, it's not the most obvious place. Right? Um, but I promise you there's a point to it. I want to talk about movies. Okay? I'm talking about TV shows, movies, storytelling. It's our modern day version of storytelling. And I am not a movie expert. I'm not a real kind of 
uh, highbrow elitist in my tastes, and, and, and I'm okay with that. I've made peace with that. Okay, but I, I do like uh, a good movie. I like a good story. And there's this author a couple of years back. His name's Donald Miller. You guys probably heard of Donald Miller. He's, he's a great, great writer. And he introduced me to this concept of, of the narrative arc, right? It's that, that a story has to make sense for it to be a good story. And it has to be compelling. And this is something that every screenwriter knows and kind of lives by, lives or dies by. Okay, and so I want to teach us kind of the narrative arc, the basic structure of a story. And the only way to really do that is an example. You've got to have an example. And, and, and so I chose one that, that, quite frankly, is not too difficult. Okay? It had to be something that, you, that a lot of people have seen. So we're going to go with the Avengers. Okay? A lot of people have seen the Avengers. And uh, you know, they've made a few of them. We're just doing the first one. Okay? It was a huge deal a couple of years ago. And it, and it really doesn't matter what the story is. We're just kind of learning the elements here. Okay, so every story has a setting. Right? That's sort of the beginning of everything. You've got to get to know the characters. You kind of are learning who are we rooting for. Right? And the Avengers are, are kind of neat because you've got, you know, got the movie itself, but then you've got like 17 other movies that were made before it where you're getting to know these guys. Right? Oh, these crime-fighting superheroes, they're all right. You know, they, they have their own little nuance. They have their own uh, kind of character flaws, but they're, they're willing to put their life on the line to protect other people to protect the world. That's a good thing, right? We like the people that we're rooting for. But in order to have a story, something has to happen. You can't, you can't just, it, it, something's got to happen that puts a story in motion. We call it the inciting incident, right? And, and in the Avengers, it's, it's usually pretty simple, right? There's a bad guy that comes along. You, you can't have a movie about Captain America driving around picking up groceries. It doesn't work, right? A bad guy comes along. And in this case, it's, it's kind of out there, right? It's Loki, the brother of Thor. He's this supernatural being from another dimension. And so what Loki's plan is, he steals this little energy cube of unlimited power. It's called the Tesseract, right? This is a sci-fi film. And he throws that thing on the end of the spear, uses it for mind control. He gets the Avenger guys, some of them, to blow up their own base, right? And this is, so this guy's bad news is basically what we're learning. And the inciting incident, it's putting everything into motion, right? It's getting the story in motion. It's drawing our characters in. And so the big question we're asking is like, well, who's going to stop this guy? Right? It turns out that Loki has a real devious plan. He wants to open up a portal to another dimension so that his invading army can come in and destroy the world, right? That's it's kind of the plot of the Avengers. Uh, but the, the, the real underlying question is, well, who's going to save the world? And it all kind of drives into the main plot of the story, the rising action, right? And this is the majority of the story. It's, it's where the tension is built. It's where we're asking that question, can they save the world? You see, one way to handle it is like Thor goes, talks to his brother, clubs him over the head, takes the rock, end of story. But it wouldn't be very good. <laughs> and so a good story has, has tension, Right? That the, our heroes, the main characters, they have to overcome insurmountable odds. There has to be a struggle for it to be a good story. And Hollywood knows this. And, and we all know it deep in our gut, right? Like, we want to we struggle with, like, how are they going to overcome? How are they going to stop this bad guy who's really bad, right? He's, like, got mind control. He's a, he's a real kind of menacing uh, villain. And it all sort of builds and it all drives toward. Climax, the climactic moment in the story, right? There is, there is always a turning point after which the world will not be the same. 
Right? There's, there's, there's a final showdown in most superhero movies, and it's, and it's great in the Avengers, right? It kind of plays out in like full Hollywood glory, right? It's like a 45-minute battle in the middle of this city. It's crazy, and, and, and people and crowds love it, and, and, it's, and it's wonderful. But, you know, it, at this point, if, if you haven't seen it and you don't know where this is going, that's, that's got to be on you, but they do, right? They, they stop Loki, right? They, they save the world. Uh, they win. The Avengers win, right? And that's and that's the big climactic battle. And then finally, the story wraps up. There's resolution, right? The world is made safe again, yeah, right? The, that that energy cube. It's out of the hands of someone who would use it for evil. Humanity is free to rebuild, right? Everything that's been lost. And these these comic book movies, they they always re- leave room for the sequel. And that's, that's kind of an element that's there. But, but the basic gist of it is like, okay, the world has been made right again, at least till next time. Okay? That's, you know, it's really not about the Avengers, right? It's our example. We're learning the narrative structure. And the reason we need to learn narrative is it does two things for us when we come back to this book, right? And the first is, is we learn that narrative works different than other styles of writing. Right? It's very different than poetry. It's very different than like the textbooks that you have to pick up and read all during the week. Right? You wouldn't pick up like the Illinois State Constitution and read it the same as Pride and Prejudice. And that comes in handy because, you know, this has all kinds of different genres in it. Right? There's, there's poetry. There's wisdom literature. There's law. Right? There's law. But the second thing that we want to recognize is that, that, that while those different genres exist and they're all here and we want read them a little differently, they're all wrapped up in one complete story that the Bible's telling from beginning to end. Right? The Bible is a narrative with its own narrative structure. It's a single story, and that helps us make sense of a lot of things. So, okay, going really fast here. Here it is, the basic kind of narrative arc of the Bible. Right? We're going to need to know this. It has a setting. Right? And, it's, and it's God creates the world. He creates people. And he says, this is good. This is very good. It's, it's loaded with potential. Right? And, and, and the, the people are at peace with God. They're in the presence of God. They can have a conversation with God. It's as clear as this right here, talking face to face. And it's very good. But then something happens. There's an inciting incident. And theologically, we call it the fall. Right? And this is, has unbelievable consequence. This launches all the struggle uh, into the story. Right? Adam and Eve, humanity, we disobey God. And sin and death enters the world, and then they are banished. They're banished from this garden where God dwells with them. Right? And that kickstarts this whole idea of exile, this big theme in, in, in our sermon series right? throughout the year is, is about exile. This is where it begins, and the question that we're forced to to ask that the story becomes about is, is how will humanity find its way home again? How will we find our way home again? Back into that peace and presence of God that we're meant to live in. And the rest of it is, and then a huge portion, right, is, is rising action. It's kind of understanding how that's going to happen, what the tension is. And, and it kickstarts with this guy named Abraham. And he becomes the father of this nation, this people called Israel, right? And so, so much of this is about the ebbs and flows, the highs and lows, the setbacks of Israel as they struggle to be 
that people that God is going to work through. And as we read this story of Israel and their highs and lows and relating to God, we see a lot of ourselves in it, right? In this drama that's playing out. And they write songs about it, right? And they write poetry about it. And they write down what they've learned, the wisdom that they've learned, and they write their history. Right, And this is the section, this rising action. This is really a section that we want to dig down into today because this is where, where all that kind of loaded stuff is at, all these statements of law that kind of hit us the wrong way. And so we start to talk about the law. And I think that a lot of times we are tempted to characterize it as like a list of rules that fell out of the sky. Right? There's, there's, it's true, there's a lot of rules. There's 613 is kind of the magic number that's been thrown out there by scholars. Right, 613 commands from God that exist in the first five books of the Bible. But if we think that it just reads like that, then, then we've sort of missed something about it because actually those laws are interwoven with Israel's story, with this narrative that's going on. Right? And so it's actually kind of law that's wrapped in narrative. And, and, and on its own, the law doesn't make a lot of sense. We need the narrative that comes with it to make any sense of it. So stick with me. This all becomes important when we read Jesus in a little bit, right? Because some places the law is really clear, right? Don't kill anybody. Don't murder. That makes sense. We, we appreciate that. But there's a lot of places where the reason we have the law, right, the motivation behind X, Y, and Z command, it's just sort of lost to history. We're like, like dietary rules, like why they can or can't eat certain, certain kinds of food. That's, sometimes we can take a guess at it, and sometimes we, we just don't know exactly. And then there's honestly places where, where we're still learning, right? That's kind of exciting that like 2,000 years later, we're, we're still learning what was there, like archaeology uncovered this pagan library okay, in Egypt at one point. And there's writings from these people groups that surrounded Israel. And one of the practices that they had in their, in their religious festivals was to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk as a sacrifice, as a way to appease their gods. And so God gives his people this, this law, these commands. Don't, don't do that. No, that's cruel. Don't, no, I, don't, I don't want that. Right? Don't be like them. You see, God gave them the, the law as their story was progressing because they were meant to be the salt of the world, the salt of the earth. And for them, salt, you know, like the primary function of salt back in the day in the ancient world, it wasn't to make their chicken taste better. It was a preservative. It was a preservative to keep meat from rotting, and it was rubbed in to the meat in a day and age when there were no refrigerators. And so they're to be salt. They're to be poured out. They're a preserving force in a world that's rotting. But the tension of, of Israel, right, this storyline that's progressing, is that they, 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 they basically fail, right? I mean... They fail at that calling, right? They, they don't walk with God in the way that they said that they would. And instead of becoming this, this preserving force in the world, they themselves become corrupt, right? They become an oppressive nation of, of other people. They blend in with the pagan culture around them and disobey God in that way. And this tension starts to build because eventually this all kind of culminates in, in exile, literal exile. 
Right? There's, there's all kinds of this storyline here that's about the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire coming in and just crushing them. And they're either killed or they get sent off to a foreign land to become slaves and servants of another empire. It's this, this incredible tension that makes it look like, man, this, this whole like rescue mission, how will humanity find its way home? Like, that, that's lost. That's over. And we're, we're meant to feel that. But then... There's another illustration, right? There's another voice that speaks up, and this time it's the prophets, right? The law and the prophets. The prophets, this guy named Isaiah, comes along and paints another kind of word picture for them. And this time it's at a point when they are, they're, they're down and out, right? They are literally slaves in a foreign land. And here, so Isaiah starts to speak on behalf of God to this people, and here's what he says, right? He talks about light. He says, and this is so God speaking to his people in exile. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. God's saying, look, like, I'm not restoring you just so you can get back on your feet again. That'd be fine, but that's not what I'm up to. Look what I'm up to. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. He says to his people, you're a light. You're the light of the world, to the Gentile world, everyone who's not Jewish, right? So the entire world. That's a pretty bold statement for a people that barely exist as a culture. Right? In terms of their influence at this point in the story, in this point in history, it's like a negative 25. Right? It just doesn't exist. This is crazy. Right? And this is the the, the story of, of, of the Bible unfolding. This is that tension that's building because... Quite frankly, the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, it doesn't answer that question, how will humanity find its way home, back to the way that God made things to be. It just kind of putters out. It, it really does putter out. And it's a people that kind of like halfway get their identity back. But then Jesus steps on the scene, right? There is a, a climactic moment, a turning point from which the world will never be the same. It's the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he sends his followers and he says, take my good news to the ends of the earth. And then we know, right, there's resolution as well. Just to kind of sum up this storyline real quick, we know there is resolution. It's what we sang about this morning. It's our hope that Christ one day will return. It's the return of King Jesus to set Everything right that's been lost. That is the sort of narrative arc of the Bible. That's the whole story that we're meant to, to kind of know and understand. And, and the thing is, if we don't understand this, if we don't have a good sense of that, then it is really, really, really hard to understand what in the world Jesus means when we come back to Matthew. Right? And we look back at, at that one Verse here, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Right? Not one word of it's going anywhere. What Jesus isn't doing is he's saying, look, I'm here and I'm really smart. I'm a rabbi. I'm going to tell you what they all meant. Right? I'm going to give you my take on them. No, that's, that's the way people did things, but that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't say, you know what, God is mad, and I'm the Son of God, and you better get serious about the law again. You better start doing all those things right. right? No, it's a totally different move, and it's, and it's a lot 
actually bolder of a, of a statement. He says all of those things, all of those previous sort of pieces of the story, the law of the prophets, it all pointed to me. It was all about me. It finds its climax in me, its fulfillment in me. I don't kind of come up under the law and tell you what it means. No, no, no. I, I am the fixed point, and the law makes sense as it revolves around me. And that upset a lot of people. That was certainly a different way of doing things. So he's saying, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, right? You've got two things there, the law, the prophets. Just broad strokes here. The law part, that's pretty easy, actually, right? It's pretty easy to understand. It would take a while to go back and say, like, oh, what were all the prophets saying? But essentially, Jesus is saying, like, all the things they promised about the Messiah, the one that God would send, that's me. I fulfilled those, right? Born of a virgin, uh, born in the city of David, Bethlehem, right? I, I, it's, it's all there. He's kind of fulfilling all those things. Matthew kind of spells that out in the opening chapters. He's saying, yeah, that was Jesus. But the law part, right, that's, that's harder. It's a little harder to get our head around. And so I thought we'd go back to a couple of the examples. What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law, right? What is, what is that relate? How does that relate to us especially? So, farmer owns a field, cow, strays into his neighbor's yard, eats his grass, eats his crops, got to make restitution. Or the seriousness of adultery, right, within their society. These are all kind of ways that we treat each other. The Bible's not saying you need to go get a cow in order to obey that. What it's saying is that those commands are fulfilled in the core teaching of Jesus. Right? Jesus says, if you want to know the summary of the law of the prophets, then love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, cheating your neighbor out of his crops, out of his money, out of his possessions, that's not, that's not loving your neighbor. Right? Cheating with your neighbor's spouse, that's, that's not loving your neighbor. And it's not who you are meant to be. It's not who God made people to be. And so he's fulfilling the law. He's pointing them toward the kind of people we're meant to be. The sacrificial system, stuff about slaying rams and this kind of thing. This is a gruesome visual aid for a long time. So that people would have a sense of the seriousness of their sin. And what it took to pay for sin. You see, the, 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 the result of sin, the consequences of sin, it's, it's always been death. It's always been death in the Bible since Adam and Eve disobeyed God. But Jesus says that that sacrifice, that sacrificial system, we don't need it anymore. It's fulfilled. And we look at Jesus and we say, no, we understand that he was the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And so we, we don't do it. It's fulfilled in Christ. A couple of kind of illustrations that I was thinking of, like, how do I help this make sense to us? Like my kids right now. They're at the funnest age where everything is new. Like everything is just adventure and they sure I'll try that, right? And so I could teach them, all right, guys, let's dribble. Let's dribble this ball. It's pretty cool. Yeah, try the other hand. Give it a shot, right? And they'll do it and it's a little clumsy sometimes, but they can get the hang of things. I could teach them all kinds of stuff. Why don't we run? Why don't we run faster? Let's see how long we can run. Let's see how high we can jump. Let's shuffle our feet, all that stuff. But someday they're going to discover basketball, Right? And it's going to be amazing. And all those things are going to find their fulfillment in this like fluid game where all of that is at their disposal. And they're going to realize, yeah, the point was never, oh, I know how to dribble a ball. It's great. 
if you're an artist, right, learning the techniques, learning the brush strokes, it's, it's fine, but it was never about that. It was about creating beautiful art. You people that are engineers, right, and you're hitting the books, and, and in four years of misery as you learn all this stuff, right, how, do I, how, much, how much weight can metal hold, all that stuff, it's, it's fine, but someday it's going to find its fulfillment, right, when you make a bridge that a school bus can drive over. Learning the notes if you're a musician, right? Being able to read sheet music, that's all, that's all great. But it, it has a greater purpose of fulfillment, right, in, in the music that you create. It works on so many levels. One of my favorite authors, and he's a, he's a pastor, he's a Christian thinker. His name's N.T. Wright, okay? He's a British uh, bishop. He's written a ton of books, and he says, look, when it comes to the Bible, this thing was never meant to be read as a long instruction manual. In fact, we're better off thinking of it as kind of a, a long, epic play, almost like a Shakespearean masterpiece, and it comes to us in five acts. Right? In the five acts, we already know them. Right? Act one is creation. Act two is that inciting incident. That's the fall. Act three is Israel with all of its struggle, with all the drama that happens there. But act four is really, really Important because Act 4 kicks off with the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. In his death, he broke the power of sin and death. He ended the curse of exile, and he shows us the way home. He opens that door. right? He fulfills that storyline, and he didn't just do that. Instead, he had this little band of followers he called his disciples, right? people who wanted to be like him, and he poured out his Holy Spirit on them. Right? And he said, you guys have a mission, and your mission is to be the light of the world. And they did all right, right? because we're here. We're that little band of followers with the Holy Spirit in us. And so for the church, for you and I, as we relate to the Old Testament, what Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount is, look, our job is not to take our lines, not to read word for word, from Acts 1, 2, and 3 and play that part. No, our role is to live, we live faithfully in Act 4. Does that make sense? We live faithfully in Act 4. And in the New Testament, there's a lot of kind of instruction on how to do that, right? There's instruction to the church and what that looks like to live faithfully there. But we got to know the whole story. Right? Because he says, he insists that his followers would have a kind of righteousness that has to go beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Otherwise, we won't be in the kingdom. And what he's saying there, that's a hard saying. And what he's saying is like, look, if you are still living in Act 3 like these guys and living that kind of righteousness, then you've missed the point. Then you're missing the point. Act 3 is fulfilled. It's time to live over here in Act 4. Right? The church, this is the era of the church, God's people, where the body of Christ with his mission to be poured out like salt and light for the sake of the world. But Acts 1, 2, and 3, just to kind of follow what Jesus is saying, it's not going anywhere. Not the least stroke of a pen is going to disappear. Our, our Jesus is pretty clear words, right? And, and what we take from that, what we need to understand is that, yes, this is still our story. And quite frankly, Act 4 doesn't make sense without 1, 2, and 3, right? And so we look back at it, but we always look at it through the lens of Jesus. Does that make sense? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. 
And this story back here, the Old Testament, with all its kind of strange sayings, it's not just this obscure section about this, this country that, that we're, we're not a part of, right? Like, it's not just this weird thing. It's, this, it's, 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 it's God's story, right? Israel's a lot of the characters, but the major player is God, and he's showing us this, this precious era in which we learn that he comes through even when we don't, right? That God fights for us even when we can't, right? That he can bring us home even when we don't know how to get there. That's what we're learning back here in this word. And we never need to shy away from this. We never need to kind of put distance between ourselves and the Old Testament, right? But we always look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ who fulfilled it. So I was thinking, okay, a lot of kind of lofty, kind of understanding the Bible stuff here. One last thing before we wrap up, right? Before we worship together and we take communion. How does this matter when you got to wake up and you got to go to class on like a Tuesday. <laughs> and I think it's really simple. I'm not going to try and beat this to death, okay? I think that all of us, as, as we think about our lives, we want to do things that matter, right? We want, we want to find some purpose. We want to find some meaning in life. And, and like the story of, of Fred kind of doing his thing, like, it's all right. My story's all right. But I know a lot of you and, and all of us, we have this little gut feeling that, like, we, it's not satisfying. It doesn't quench that. It doesn't do it for us. And what I would say is that the invitation of Jesus, right, what Jesus speaks into that is, is, is pretty clear here. It's because this is the story that we're meant to live in. Right? This is the story that people are made for. And so, it, you know, kind of the, the invitation for you guys is, are, are, have you found your place? Have you found your place in God's story? Because he does. He offers you a role, right? He wants to use your life as salt and light. He wants to pour out your life for the sake of the people around you. He wants to use your influence for the sake of the people around you. That's what he's up to. And so he invites you into that. Guys, let's pray together.